Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Tuesday, October 5th, 2021, and we will be discussing a New York Times op-ed from today's paper by Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize-winning Princeton economist, called On Very Serious People, Climate and Children. How are you this morning, Michael? I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful day here, and uh, this will be very interesting to see what Paul Krugman has to say. Yes. Um, so we chose this one sort of last minute. We have not read it. Just we've been doing a lot of foreign affairs, but those take a long time, and we got a bit of a late start today. So today we'll be looking at Paul Krugman, who usually has a very concise, uh, succinct style in his op-eds. Of course, I believe that his scholarship, he's a little more long form. But we'll take a look at what he has to say, and I think it'll be very interesting. So should we just jump right into the article? Yeah, let's jump right into the article on very serious people, climate, and children. Okay. Um, Let me pull that up. (laughs) The first sentence is interesting in this article. It says, do you remember the days of Simpson Bowles debt reduction plan. I do not remember the days of Simpson I don't Bowles either. reduction plan. I don't plan. remember that at all. <laughs> I believe he explains it to us though, right? Yeah, I think so. So yeah. Paul Krugman says, do you remember the days of the Simpson Bowles debt reduction plan? A decade ago, elite opinion was obsessed with the supposed need for immediate action on budget deficits. This consensus among what I used to call very serious people, was so strong that Ezra Klein, now a Times opinion writer, wrote, deficits somehow became an issue to which the rules of reportorial neutrality don't apply. What does that mean? That he is allowed to have an opinion uh, in these these issues. Um, He can have an opinion about deficits. It's not just a... I don't, I'm don't. i sure the rules of repertorial uh, neutrality don't apply, so he doesn't have to be neutral. So you could you say... Have an opinion about net deficits. So, you're ready to say that, I think. Okay. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that I just wasn't getting it. I just wasn't getting it through my thick skull, but I think you were right. You got it. I didn't. Let me just make it sure... It was this... a decade ago, so I guess it was a, you know, about a decade ago. And I'm making sure the stream is up. We do have the stream live. Good. So, back to the article. (laughs) Okay. We've decided that a decade ago, reducing the debt was so important that having an opinion on it was allowed by reporters. That's what we've learned so far, correct? By, By Ezra Klein, now a Times opinion writer. The news media more or less openly rooted not just for deficit reduction in general, but in particular for entitlement reform, a.k.a. cuts in future Medicare and Social Security benefits. Such cuts, everyone who mattered seemed to argue, were essential to secure the nation's future. Well, as someone that's on Social Security, (laughs) that doesn't sound too good to you, does it? (laughs) No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, uh, the the future... uh, Whatever the future is, uh, it's based on the past and the people who are drawing Social Security established this culture and this economy and this country to give us a future. Mm-hmm. 
So there should be some kind of a continuation there of respect. It's funny because when you think about all the, I may like sort of display my um, political biases here, but when you think about all the, the skeevy corporations in the world, you know what they often do? They raid their workers' pension funds to to do something that to go out on a quixotic quest and then they lose all the pension funds of their workers. You know, that's always what like these corrupt corporations do. That's exactly what the proposal is when you reform Medicare. Oh, let's use Social Security money for something. It's like, uh, maybe that should be kept safe, you know, in a separate pot, like the pension funds of your workers. Okay, moving on. Um, such cuts, everyone who mattered seemed to argue, were essential to secure the nation's future. They weren't. But here's my question. This is Paul Krugman saying that they weren't essential. If elite opinion cares so much about the future, why isn't there any comparable consensus now about the need for climate action and spending on children? These are two of the main components of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, and the case for both is much stronger than the case for entitlement cuts ever was. Okay, so we're getting to the <laughs> thesis of the right. article. In other words, he's saying they were so, they were so anxious to cut Social Security benefits. Why don't you have that same energy with uh, the uh, uh, spending on children and the climate change, mm -hmm. which is probably more important? Yeah. Um, so th that we have a thesis. Yes, but I think we'll see what he has to say. But my first impression is that's just not how people think. No. Uh, people people don't think with their heads. They think with their pocket purse and they, uh, their, their, their money. And they think with uh, whatever is expeditious at the present time. They don't think they don't think about long term things. Now, my question is, is this a little bit of what about is you, you said the debt were a problem, but what about climate change and <laughs> and ch ch childhood education and stuff? Yes, but his, I think his thesis is uh, climate change and childhood and childhood education and children is much more important than cutting Social Security benefits. And it's not and what about ism because he said you were a, you were for gutting Social Security and giving it to rich people because you cared about the future. But if you really cared about the future, wouldn't you care about this? That's yeah, so. It's yeah, the, so it's, the reason's the same. Yeah, it's not a whataboutism. It's saying if you really believe that, would then expand it to something really important. <laughs> yeah. Um, continue. So I'm sure there's, a, there's. I'm sure there's another word for that. But uh, anyway. So, uh, yeah, Okay, yet, yeah, whereas calling for Social Security cuts used to be treated as sort of a political badge of seriousness, calling for urgent action on climate change and children isn't. If anything, much reporting on current politics seems to suggest that a handful of Democrats trying to dismantle Build Back Better to limit the Biden agenda to modest spending on conventional infrastructure are being responsible, while the progressives are trying to make sure that we really do invest in the nation's future are really somehow unserious. Let's talk about what securing the future really means. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how do you feel uh, about that? Well, he's trying to set the stage of, of pitting the, the, uh, the progressives for the 
trying to pit people against one another, you know. Well, I I think that people are pit against one another. He's just saying they're pit against one another. And the ones that don't want spending on climate change or children are trying to say, listen, we only need to spend on bridges and roads. Let's gut all the money for climate and children because we're responsible. We're serious. They're not serious. They just want a wish list of, you know, protect from the climate, you know, ensure that children have a prosperous future. That's that's pipe dream. And he's saying that's not a pipe dream. That's a serious thing that you can actually accomplish. The reason why you're saying you can't accomplish it is is a not serious, you know? That's what he's getting at. It's true. But I uh, the feeling I get is that quite often people will do things not because it's a good idea. Uh, they won't do things because it's going to have a good outcome. They do things because it's expedient. Mm-hmm. And they do things because a lot of times they will have uh, personal personal uh, skin in the game and, and, it, and it's very personal. And uh, they'll just they'll just argue in logical way um, some very good arguments. I think he's getting ready to to, to share with us, and uh, people just don't look at that. They'll argue the other side, whether it's right or not. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this this last year, uh, since since January sixth. People will use arguments that are really hollow, uh, but they will stand behind them tooth and tooth and nail. Yeah. Let's see what he says. Okay. Do you want to read? Okay. The logic of demands for entitlement reform was always suspect. It's true that an aging population and rising health care costs may eventually force us to choose between tax hikes and benefit cuts, although worries about government debt have long been greatly overblown. But why was it urgent to take action in, say, 2010? What would be lost by waiting a few years? If you thought about it, the elite consensus was that we needed to cut future benefits in order to avoid future cuts in benefits. Huh? By contrast, the cost of delaying action on climate and children is real and immense. Okay. So I think that's a good point. Very, very good point. Yeah. We need to cut benefits now so that we don't have to cut them in the future. Whereas, like, if we don't take action on climate change now, um, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. We are in trouble already. Things are happening. Things yeah. are happening that can't be reversed. The things about the things about climate change and and uh, and uh, and the Earth and our world is that once things start and they have started, you can't reverse them. They're mm-hmm. not reversible. You can reverse benefit cuts and tax. You can reverse that, yeah, and then and then re- recoil, but you can't reverse things with the with the ecology. Can't reverse things with the world. You can't you can't reverse it, and you can't stop it. Sometimes it's very difficult to stop once it started. As a very difficult, probably impossible in some cases. So we don't have control of the earth once it once it starts doing something or the our our. The Earth climate, but also the Earth climate is not is not just the Earth climate. The Earth climate is part of our solar systems and our and our, and our solar uh, uh, the, the system with around our our Earth. And once that gets started, uh, and how we react with that, you can't reverse it. Mm-hmm. So I think I think people think uh, climate is something you control. 
you can't control it uh, once it gets started, but you can do things to mitigate moving away from from the the, the normalcy of of the the natural progression of climate, and that's what we've been doing. We've been affecting it. That's well, yeah. what people are trying to say. I I mean I I did some work in climate science back in the day, and. Uh, one interesting thing was there used to be this argument like, well, the climate's always changing. And it's like, yes, but if you take a look at the historical climate changes, there, the graph, I'll just cut to myself real quick. The graph looks like this, okay? And the gra I'm just moving my finger up and down. It's So, you know, historical global temperatures over time are like this. And then you get to the point where humans come on this earth. And we just had this unprecedented period of stasis <laughs> and because you're talking about millions of years so it looks like this well in the 10 20,000 years that humans have been around we've had this unprecedented period of stasis and we're trying to avoid losing that stasis by something we did now while it's true that you know a natural occurrence a huge volcanic explosion that sends ash into the atmosphere could also cause temperatures to rise like the fact that we knew what we were doing and we didn't do anything to curtail it is causing temperatures to slowly rise. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, the climate is always changing. And yes, we have had vastly different climates than what we have right now, but not when humans were around. <laughs> and that's the scary thing. And like you said, it's hard to change. We've been reading foreign affairs that talk about how the U.S. government's an ocean liner. Once it gets going in a direction, it's hard to steer. Um, I think that's doubly true for climate. Yeah, but with an ocean liner, you can steer it. It may not work that well and slow, but with the world and the climate, there's no steering. That goes back to what you said earlier today, that people want solutions that are going to work. If you have $500 million in a trust fund for Social Security, and you know it'll last 30 years, and you cut benefits by 10%, then you'll know it'll last 33 years. So you're saying we're extending this by 30 by three years. We know that's going to work. Now, when you say we're going to throw 500 billion at climate change, there's no guarantee that our solutions are going to work. So why should we do that when we could just cut the payments in Social Security and get the same result? If you're thinking about it in terms of dollars and cents, you know that one is a solution. You'll extend the benefit life if you cut the benefits now. With climate change, you're not guaranteeing that you'll mitigate the effects of climate change by spending on it now. You could be trying a lot of things that don't work. Well, I think it's a different argument. With uh, the budget, with money, if you do this, a positive things will happen and a natural result will happen. Mm -hmm. But with climate change, you don't know what will happen, but you know what bad things will result if you don't do something yes so it's a whole different kind of argument mm -hmm. it's not like oh do this because this good will happen is that if you don't do this the bad things will happen and so it's not like you're going to get something good it's that you're preventing something really bad mm -hmm. and that's a whole different argument and so when you try to move from uh, tax hikes and benefit cuts to climate change it's a whole different argument and people just don't make that leap. Yes. They don't they don't agree with that type of an argument because yeah, but we can't do anything about it. Well, it's not like tax 
It's not it's not like tax hikes and benefit cuts. It's not the same argument, mm -hmm. but but it's even more serious because once it starts, they say, oh, this is bad. Let's let's do something about it. It's too late. And a lot of people are saying it's too late. But I guess what I'm saying is with climate change or with benefit cuts to extend the life of the Social Security Trust Fund, they are measured by the same scoreboard, which is dollars and cents. So you say these dollars and cents will be effective. There's no guarantee that these dollars and cents will be. And you say, yes, but without these dollars and cents, there will be catastrophe. Yes, but you could spend all these dollars and cents and lose them. Like, you're gambling them here. This will actually work. Do you see what I mean? Yep. Yep. And when you use the same scoreboard for two different things, people will conflate what winning is. And I think that's what he means here by contrast. The cost of delaying action on climate and children is real and immense. Yes. Continue with the article. On climate, every year that the world fails to limit greenhouse gas emissions, humanity emits about 35 billion tons of carbon dioxide. And these emissions will stay in the atmosphere, warming the planet for hundreds of years. We've already seen the costs imposed by the leading edge of climate change. Severe droughts, a proliferation of extreme weather events, the overwhelming scientific consensus is that such costs will get far worse in the decades ahead. So, by postponing climate action, we are undermining our future in a much more substantial way than we do by, say, adding a few percent to the national debt. <laughs> that's what we're saying. That's right. And that's a very, that's, that's a good argument. That's true. It's true, I think, uh, and the problem, well, getting back to logic, the problem with that is people in the United States, in our schools, have not learned to argue logically mm -hmm. or understand logical arguments. Either one of those is two different things, uh, because... A lot of times that we see today in politics, in the news, in uh, in, in the entertainment, uh, the argument is emotional. It's not logical. And I think that's what he's saying, that we have overwhelm overwhelming scientific consensus that 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 such cost will get far worse in the decades ahead. So why don't we do anything about it? Because it's not emotional enough, and and it doesn't fit their their emotional uh, argument. Yeah, I mean, I made this argument last year. I probably have made it on the podcast, but I made this last year, and I thought it was a pretty good one. So I'll reiterate it. Reiterate it, David. The coronavirus, COVID nineteen, and the mitigating steps that people were asked to take to sort of slow the spread was like climate change and fast forward. So it's like, we don't have a silver bullet solution, but maybe you should wear a mask. What do you get? Protests at the state capitol. No masks, no masks, no masks. You know, it's like, we don't have a, we don't have a solution to this climate change, you know, but in 30 years, we're going to have real trouble if we don't sort of transition from fossil fuels. What do you have? Protests. More fossil fuels, more fossil fuels, more fossil fuels. Um, the no masks, you know, the no maskers, they're the ones that end up in the ICU. And uh, and the no vaxxers are even more likely to end up in the ICU than someone that's been vaccinated. You know, you could wear a mask and end up in the ICU. It's just sort of luck of the draw. But um, so we were asking people, can you make well, small income? Back, oh, go ahead. Back up, David. The, the no maskers, 
Uh, when you say that, I want you to say, uh, not I want you to say, when you say that, in my mind, I'm thinking, the no-maskers, it's not that they will end up in the ICU. Is that all of their older relatives mm-hmm. will end up in the ICU and all of their friends and their relatives and their grandparents and their whole family is at risk because of what they do. That's the thing that they don't care about. Mm-hmm. And so when they see their grandfather, their grandmother, their mother, their father, their 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 aunt, their uncle, uh, or even their spouse, when they see that, the no-maskers are increasing the risk of them going to the ICU yeah. and being on their ventilator and dying. Yeah, I mean, it's just... That's you, what makes me angry. And it's a personal choice. It's like you can either be anti-COVID or pro-COVID, you know? And I think these people are like, I'm, I'm pro-COVID. I want COVID to win. I'm not going to wear a mask. I want COVID to beat humans. I'm not going to get vaccinated. So, I mean, they made that choice, and I don't know. That's But it's a personal choice, you know. You can either be the good guy or the bad guy. Yeah. Um, and you can choose uh, to drive drunk. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it a personal choice to drive drunk? Why don't we have the freedom to get blackout drunk and start <laughs> driving the car and run into people and kill people? Yeah. What's wrong with that? Why don't they allow that instead of the the anti, along with the anti yeah. anti maskers? It's the same thing to me. Yeah. If you drive drunk and you put others in danger, you're just anti life. But that should be a personal choice. Just like not wearing a mask or getting vaccinated. You're anti-life. But if you want to put others' lives at dangers, that should be your choice, right? Yeah, I don't see any, <laughs> I don't see any difference between those two. We do have laws about drunk driving. Mm-hmm. And we should have laws about anti-maskers. Uh, because it's putting other people in danger. It's not just them. And it's, and it's the people who are putting in danger at risk. And with a drunk driver, it's the people who are innocent out there just driving and doing what they're supposed to do. And a lot of times it's the people uh, who take, get COVID, uh, they just, they're doing what they're supposed to do, but then someone else uh, uh, contaminates them. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, climate change is like that. But instead of, hey, if you don't social distance and wear a mask, like you're going to have a real problem in three weeks. If people can't get that through their thick skulls and they go out to the restaurants and the bars and they don't wear masks and then they have a real problem in three weeks, how are you going to convince someone? If you don't curtail fossil fuel consumption, you're going to have a problem in three decades, two decades, one decade, five years, three years. We couldn't even do it when the threat was a month away. We couldn't prepare for the future. So how are we going to prepare for the future when the threat is... I mean, it's it's upon us, but even when the threat was clearly upon us with with uh, COVID, we didn't we weren't able to adjust as a society. So I'm not holding out much hope, and I know that's bleak, but I, that's that's my opinion. So we're seeing the symptoms of a deeper issue and a cause that uh, that uh, the anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, and uh, we're seeing those are the symptoms of a deeper cause. And maybe the cause of that is just something that's responsible, uh, a responsible uh, society, uh, a society that is responsible for the future. Because we are so, uh, Americans are so uh, personal, uh, they're so individual, and they're so very myopic, very near term. Uh, 
and we need to think more of other people like other cultures uh, th think more of the future and planning for the future that's not being done mm -hmm. we don't do that in this country anyway so, that, that's that's my opinion so back to the article back back to the article <laughs> on children so we talked about climate change let's get to children child poverty is a huge problem in america and there's overwhelming evidence that spending on programs that alleviate child poverty has huge payoffs children who receive aid from these programs grow up to be healthier adults with higher earnings than those who don't in fact the evidence for high returns from spending more on children is much stronger than the evidence for high returns to spending on roads and bridges although we should do that too so every year we don't increase aid to children, for example, by expanding the, expanding the child tax credit leads to decades of wasted human potential. Okay, but elite reporting and much reporting somehow fails to highlight the extreme irresponsibility of opposing clean energy plans and the immense waste of human potential that comes from failing to address child poverty. Instead, it's all 3.5 trillion, 3.5 trillion, often without pointing out that this is proposed spending over a decade, not a single year and that it would amount to only 1.2% of GDP. I think that's very interesting because who cares what the big ticket number is? Oh, 3.5 trillion is too much. We want 1.2 trillion. And it's like, that's more money than people can conceive of. And I, I, I've seen this argument made elsewhere, but it's like, don't talk about 3.5 trillion. Talk about what's in the 3.5 trillion. You know, by expanding the child tax credit, by you know, investing in early childhood education, we can alleviate child poverty by 55%. And the effects of child poverty are this, this bill will alleviate that. And it's like, that's awesome. And does it matter that that's part and parcel of a $3.5 trillion plan over 10 years? Or does it not matter at all? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, very good point. Well, his argument here, which I... Paul Krugman, I love what you're saying about just the three simple words, wasted human potential. I think people disregard and undermine and some kind even discount potential, human potential in this in this country and actually in the world uh, there, especially with children. I mean, uh, brilliant, brilliant people. Uh, br children grow into brilliant people and people who can make make a change in this world, positive changes in, in this world. And uh, those children, that human potential in children uh, comes from everywhere. It doesn't come from just the elite families. It comes from everywhere. And the human potential across the board, uh, no matter where they're from uh, and no matter what their background uh those that that human potential is enormous for the future of our society and our civilization, uh, not only our country, but also the world. And I think I think that that really should be uh, at the forefront. And so we're talking about aid to children and also, you know, education of children, aid to children, but also uh, supporting uh, the family unit that supports the children as well. I think the greatest the greatest human atrocity is not even supporting uh, the the children and letting the children uh, grow and and grow into themselves instead of telling them what they should do should do. 
and give them give them the open door so they can grow into something that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I again wasted human potential is one of the greatest travesties that we have in this world. And uh, you, you can talk talk about education, talk about healthcare, you can talk about poverty, uh, but those three words that Paul Krugman, I I just think that is uh, an indictment. Uh, of our existence, mm -hmm. wasted and, human potential, and spending on whatever plans they have right now, whatever people they have in place to man those plans, isn't the optimal thing. But what he's saying is, if you spend on, you know, child income tax credits and and early childhood education and this and that and that and that, and we provide people opportunities, it may not be perfect, but it'll be better than nothing. And, I, and some things, and some things, you do have to spend for short term to make sure that we're still here, mm -hmm. uh, but also invest in the long term. So you have to have a balance between the, the short term returns and long term equity growth, and the equity growth in our existence is on children. Mm -hmm. So shall uh, we continue? Few, yeah, let's continue on. Okay, you, <laughs> it starts with okay. You want me to continue on? Sure. Okay. I don't fully understand this double standard. Why very serious people became obsessed with the supposedly urgent need to limit government debt, yet are blasé about, if not hostile, to proposals to tackle the issue that really matter for our future. Money is surely part of the story. Corporate groups like the US Chamber of Commerce were all in on entitlement reform but are lobbying furiously against Build Back Better. Indeed, the Democrats trying to scuttle Biden's agenda are more accurately described as the party's corporate wing than as centrists. After all, polls suggest that the policies they oppose are highly popular. So in that sense, they're well to the right of the political center. But not everyone defining conventional wisdom is on the take. There also seems to be a sort of social dynamic in politics and the media, perhaps reflecting the circles in which opinion leaders move, that, that treats people who want to make the lives of ordinary Americans harder are as courageous, while considering those who want to raise taxes on corporations uh, and the rich flaky and unrealistic. Whatever the reasons for this dynamic, it needs to be fought. Right now, we have an opportunity to really do the right thing. It will be a tragedy if this opportunity is missed. Interesting. Now, my question is, um, I just don't see a world where the government loosens its purse strings and provides all this funding to help mitigate the effects of climate change and improve the lives of children. Where if you're a corporate interest, even if you're a corporate interest in coal or oil, natural gas, where you wouldn't be in a unique position to form subsidiary companies that do wind farming or solar panels. I mean, you have a lot of infrastructure, you have a lot of trucks, you have a lot of ability. And yeah, it may not be your core business, but you're already attached to the grid. You understand how it works. You are understand how energy production and moving it around and charging for it works. And you have 
millions, if not billions of dollars. And so it's like, well, this is going to fund renewables. We can't have that. We need to work against that. What if you say, okay, well, let's form a subsidiary. Let's form Halliburton Solar. Let's form Halliburton Wind. Let's form Coke Industries Renewable. And let's get that government money like we've been doing for the last... You also already know how to work with people to get government contracts. You know, these are the people that have been getting government contracts for the last 30 years. Why not just, instead of trying to stop the wind from blowing, why not use your position as someone who knows how to capture the wind when it blows and just say, yeah, pass the bill. We'll be first in line to to take the government money. That's, that's just, I don't understand why they fight against this when they could just use it to their advantage. Maybe. It's because of, of an article we read back in the Foreign Affairs, us and them. Uh, maybe our mentality, our mentality in this culture, in, this, in, in the uh, corporate culture, is, is this is who we are, and we have, we have an agenda, and we have to push that agenda, and that's us. And against them, they are, they are the opposite. We are... We are the good guys. They are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And so it's us and them. And so they don't they don't see the bigger picture, how we all work together. Uh, I don't think you're going to they don't see us as winning if we all work together. And I think uh, uh, on the playing field, on the arena, within the arena, uh, whoever wins triumphant beats the, the, the foe. And so it's not it's not a collective thing. It's a us and them thing. And I, I think that's one that could be one cause of why they don't think this way. Uh, our mentality just doesn't think in that direction of cooperation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that there's some truth to what you said. But I also think that there is a legitimate economic reason that these groups have to oppose some of these programs. And it's not legitimate from the terms of you and I, or like, you know, American citizens. American citizens will benefit from this. So why is it bad? Well, I'm sure that the Koch brothers and the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, is the Cato Institute, uh, the Heritage Foundation. Let's just say the Heritage Foundation. They have very good reasons why this would be bad for the people who give them money. And the question is, are they wrong too? Or will it be bad? You know what I mean? Or my question then would be, is it bad because you will see a return in 30 years, not in the next six months? Is that it? So all they see is short-term return, not long-term growth. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that's more of a question than a, than a statement. So here's the Heritage Foundation. Re budget reconciliation tracker. Tracking Biden's socialist big government proposals. You know, and I, I feel like, you know, this is uh, Joe Coors, who was one of the founders of the Her Heritage Foundation. And I feel like if he hates socialism so much, why doesn't he build his own roads to ship his beer? Because he's on U.S. <laughs> highways and interstate highways. I, I see him. I watch him go on to the, the interstate highway. from We live right now near Coors. And it's like, hey, if you hate socialism so much, build your own road. Don't use the interstate. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and why do you use uh, telephone lines? Yeah. <laughs> and telecommunications uh, that the government built and provides. Uh, and, the, and, the, and city water 
in sewage. <laughs> uh, it's uh, again, I think I think it's it, it just uh, benefits their cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll they'll pick and choose what people will follow and not follow if it, if it benefits their cause. Yeah, the Cato Institute is the Koch brothers. Oh, oh, I'm pulling this up and I don't even have the browser. No. Oops. Hold on. So yeah, Cato Institute is the Koch brothers. Formerly called the Charles Koch Foundation. So they, I guess they're libertarian, so they want no government intervention at all. Mm-hmm. So, I guess there is an ethos to why you would oppose this bill if you're the Cato Institute. Right, right. You know, and I, I don't know, uh, it's a different discussion and maybe another podcast, but when you talk about all the different perspectives and views, and uh, in my mind, and my feeling is that they all have a point. Uh, but the point, uh, the problem is that they take the point to extremes. Yeah. And so, so, so you know, like uh, libertarians, they do have a point, uh, but you can't have everything that way because uh, some things, some things you want socialists and some things you want libertarian and some things uh, you want it to be more, more democratic and so you want it to be more. So uh, there, there's, it's not, it's not us and them again. It's not, it's not either, the good guys are bad guys, the white hats are the black hats. And uh, it's it's a combination. It's a working together and cooperation. Yeah. Again, going back, we don't really cooperate and, and give and take as we move forward. Well, I mean, and I we use this all the time on the podcast, and I firmly believe it's like my political mantra. Like you said, everyone has a point. The Cato Institute could explain to you why this Build Back Better bill is terrible. And... They would be very well reasoned and well documented. But mm-hmm. I say this all the time, and I think I'm right. Where you stand depends on where you sit. So from the Cato Institute's perspective, the reason why they oppose it isn't in the interest of scholarship or not even in the interest of ideology. It's in the interest of the people that give the Cato Institute money to perform their scholarship will Detri- well, it'll be detrimental to them if this bill passes. That's why they're against it. And that's why anyone's against anything. And I think the fascinating thing for me is um, you, can, you can support policies ideologically and then they end up harming you. Oh, I do think that we should increase this tax to help provide for education for children. And then you're a small business owner and the income taxes you pay as an S corporation are just too high to pay your rent for your lease and you have to shutter your doors. And you say, if only I hadn't have had that idea that the taxes should be enough to you know, help out children, my little business would still be in business. And so I really support lower taxes because the tax burden was too high for me to stay in business. So it's like, do you support lower taxes or do you support you know, providing early childhood education for children? You know, there's, um, there's trade-offs. And I think, you know, if you're an independent business person and taxes are the make or break, that taxes are where your margin lives, whether you're taking that money home or you're giving it to the government, it really hurts. <laughs> so the lower the taxes, the better. And uh, I mean, the people that fund these institutes, 
they're not workers. They're owners. Um, you know? They don't have a job. They're not W-2 workers for Amazon. They own companies, and they pay W-2 workers. That's the type of people that start these foundations. And so the, the scholarship coming out of these institutes against a Build Back Better plan will be scholarship that explains to other people that are owners, not workers, why this is bad. And to an owner, that'll make sense. To a worker, they'll say, ah, oh, that's above my pay grade. Yeah. So what do you think about that? <laughs> I, I totally agree. I agree that uh, the, uh, I think, uh, what I think, David, is uh, to coming to a close here, uh, if that's okay, yeah, I, would I, that's say, I would say, I think uh, the arguments that we keep coming back to and the arguments that a lot of people provide and uh, on and on and on, and, and we've done this podcast uh, a, a number of times and we have all different views and it's very stimulating. I really, really love it. But we're coming back to your statement of where you stand depends on where you sit. And I think you could write a very compelling article about that saying, that's the title of your of your article and 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 uh, not even an article, a whole journal journal uh, uh, article on all these examples and all a taxonomy of that of a structured taxonomy of the application of that saying where you stand depends on where you sit on all different areas mm -hmm. because it's so true today and then counterexample that with what if you didn't do that and what would be the counterexample for progress in the future so anyway i'm just throwing that out as, as something to consider uh, for the future because i think that would be an excellent uh, uh thought uh, uh process that can have they, they could have returns. Yeah. Well, I not, think, not only for you or me, but but everybody for for Paul Krugman and other people. Mm -hmm. Well, I think like, you know, the more you have, the more you have to lose. There's this saying, you know, if you're not anti-establishment at 20, you got no heart. And if you're not establishment by 30, you got no brains. <laughs> so once you have something, you have something to lose. And so it's easy right. to say, no, the establishment's wrong. Or, you know, if you're an 18-year-old kid, you just got the right to vote, and you got Bernie saying all college should be free. You're like, I'll take $200,000 less of debt in four years. That sounds great. Now, if you're someone your age, you know, that, you know, your children are already through college, you're like, wait a minute. I help my kids get through college. This isn't fair. Why is this kid getting free college? Um, uh, and, it's it's an interesting dichotomy, right? Yeah, like oh, I'm I'm 65 years old and I worked really really hard to make money to send my kids through school, and then these other people they didn't work at all and they just want they just want a free ride. So that does not fair, but that's not really the story. That that's a way to look at yes. it. Yes. Uh, and so we got to step back and and look at a bigger picture, and don't look at so don't don't have it so personal. And I think we need to. But think it's hard to separate politics from your personal life. It really is. Again, and, where you stand depends on where you sit. And if you're 45, 50, and you're making a quarter million dollars a year, 
and you say, well, I think it's a good idea to gut Social Security because I'll know now and I'll have 15 years, 20 years left in my career to save some of this windfall because I know Social Security won't be there. But what if you're 65 and you were depending on that? And they said, oh, we're going to pull the rug out from under you at the last second. That's not fair. <laughs> yeah, I don't have time to build anymore. Yeah. I've built, I've built for six, 50, 60 years. And now all of a sudden what I built, you're taking away from me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess that's the American way. But it's it's so it's difficult to separate your individual experience, your lived experience, from your politics. That's true. That's true. That's why and where so, you where you stand depends on where you sit. If your lived right. experience is building these businesses and you're like, I succeeded because of my own exceptionalism, the more the government was out of my way, the better I did. That'll be your political ideology, like Charles Koch. Yep, exactly. Yeah, where you where you stand depends on where you sit, and uh, and also sometimes where you sit depends on uh, how you've created that place to sit. In other words, you've you've developed it, so now this is where I'm at. Yes, and uh, and like you said, you've worked for sixty five years, or forty years, or thirty years. Mm -hmm. Just to get back to the article, real quick. Yeah, this is why. But the thing is. Where you stand depends on where you sit, but some people have more money and influence and power uh, over opinions than others. And those people are the people with money, influence, and the power. And so I want to go back to the corporate wing of the Democratic Party is trying to scuttle Biden's agenda. And they're described as the corporate wing, not centrists, because polls suggest that these policies are highly popular. That's the fascinating thing. And you know why they're highly popular? Because from where the average American sits, a lot of the stuff in that bill sounds pretty darn good to them. Mm -hmm. So it is corporate interest trumping individual interests, I think, in this instance. And that's what Paul Krugman wants to point out. And he wants to point out when the argument about the future was made about cutting entitlements, cutting your right to Medicare and your right to Social Security. That was about also about the same thing. So he's not conflating the two. He's not doing whataboutism. He's saying corporate interests are different than individual interests. You were worried about the future when it meant that you could take money from Social Security and put it in your pockets. Now you're not worried about the future when you don't get anything out of it. So, Which begs the question, how do you do it? How, which begs the question, how do you resolve that conflict? How do you, how do you move forward from that? Uh, what type of a system would not have that kind of a, uh, those kind of issues? Because pretty much every political system ha has those problems. Yeah. Well, I think like you see in China, because people are always worried about the boogeyman of communism. But I think that you see these sort of oligarchical corporate interests like the Koch brothers and others um, pushing for policies that are perhaps against the average American's interest. That happens here. And then there's a give and take. And you have people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema that says, we're going to side with the corporations, not the people. And the people are dismayed, but that's just how politics works here. In China, the party is that. Right. It's, there's a lot of wealth here to be controlled. 
You control the wealth if you're in the party. Individuals go out and make the wealth. We decide whether or not we want to repatriate that wealth into the party. Um, and then we decide how do we take this immense amount of wealth and distribute it to the people in a manner where we can keep them under our control. Not in the most equitable manner. It's how do we distribute it in a manner to maintain control. And I think in many respects, corporate interests working in concert with congressmen and chief executives also do the same thing here. You know, Mark Bezos lost $7 billion yesterday because Facebook went down. That You could take 7,000 Americans and give them a million dollars of his wealth from yesterday that he had at the beginning of yesterday that he didn't have at the end. And if he had done that, instead of having Facebook go down and losing $7 billion, if he chose 7,000 people and gave them a million dollars, he could have substantially changed 7,000 lives and still been the fifth richest man in the world. So there is this disparity in wealth and... And the interesting thing is even Paul Krugman, as an economist, says alleviating child poverty has huge payoffs. Children who receive AIDS from these programs go on to be healthier adults with higher incomes. So earnings is a measure of how well you're doing in life. So Mark Zuckerberg is doing far more than 7,000 times better than me with just the money he lost yesterday. <laughs> and we're the same age. <laughs> Doesn't seem fair, does it? No. Yeah, I saw that uh, higher incomes and I thought, well, that's an interesting measure of success. But how do economists measure anything? It's a metric that you can point to. It's true. It's true. Yeah, and it is a metric. It is a metric. Mm -hmm. But then again... Uh, do all intelligent citizens a, uh, a strive for higher earnings? Uh, no. No, not at all. No. Maybe economists think they do, but they don't. A lot of people will pull back and say, I have other things that would rather do with, uh, with a, I want a, I want a happy life and a family mm -hmm. life. I don't want, I don't want to, uh, to sacrifice everything just for high earnings. Yeah. So that's not always true. So, yeah, but it, so even for Krugman, though, it's a metric of success. Right. <laughs> so, well, the metric is there for those who want to take it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And also higher earnings, I think, uh, comfortable earnings to where you can earn to the level that 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 satisfies your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so you can make those choices. Uh, on where you want to be, because if if higher earnings is a measure of success, well then why don't people just totally uh, just focus just on earnings? And they don't do that. People don't. People, most people don't do that. Some people do, uh, but everyone doesn't. No. So it, it's a good article. It is a good article, and I think we got a good discussion out of it for 50 minutes, despite it being much shorter than a foreign affairs article. But it's easier to stop and start when we do a Krugman article. Well, David, I think I think we can take these issues and just just we we can talk. It's easy to talk about these issues because these people these are smart. Krugman is a very intelligent person. Mm -hmm. He brings up some very good points, but the world is so complicated, and uh, real reality reality is is 
not unidimensional. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a moving target, and and so when you start talking about things, when you go from theory to reality, uh, you're moving into areas that uh, you'll never have you'll never have a weakness or you'll never have uh, you'll always have something to talk about yes and I, you'll never have a shortage shortage of an idea it's something to talk about and for my sum up is that i don't like it when people <clears throat> say the right or the, the left thinks that everything should be socialists or the right thinks that you shouldn't have access to early childhood education but what paul krugman is saying in this article that i like is he's calling them very serious people and he's done this for years <laughs> And he's saying these very serious people made this argument that we have, to, in order to protect the future, we have to gut Medicare and Social Security. And their reasoning for that argument was just as flawed as their reasoning right now for why we shouldn't spend money to mitigate the effects of climate change and help children. So he's saying even though they claim to be serious, what they're advocating for is not serious. And I think that's a good point. He's he's attacking them on their stances not on who they are does that make sense mm -hmm. he says he says okay i don't fully understand this double standard why very serious people became obsessed with a supposedly urgent need to limit government debt yet are blasé about if not hostile to proposals to tackle the issue that really matters for our future <laughs> yeah you know they go back and forth. That's that's humanity. That's humans. That's that's what people do. Even serious people and even intelligent people. Uh, intelligent people don't always make the right decisions. Yeah. They they can give a good arguments for their decisions. That doesn't mean their decisions are right. Mm -hmm. So just because you have a good argument doesn't mean it's right. Because again, reality in this world is is uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't follow the argument of people. Uh, the world is the world, yes. and we have to learn. We have to learn the world. Typically, an argument is like the uh, the blind men touching the elephant's trunk and tail and hide. You're just focusing on a small part of the picture, and you can make a compelling argument, but you're not necessarily right. So, I think should we uh, start to wrap this up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. All right, I'll play this the music, and I'll say this has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Uh, we are live Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 a.m., and we're available on YouTube, Amazon, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. So tune in, and we'll catch you in the next one. Is there anything you'd like to say as we leave? Yes. The Sons of Sequoia podcast, we always say keep on talking, but listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying.